What's going on, everybody? This is AJ, your host of the Blue to Green podcast. Today's episode is going to be a heavy one. I was honored to sit down and talk with Mr. Rick Booker, who is a 27-year veteran of the Scottsdale Fire Department. And throughout his career, he had a pretty astonishing career, helped a lot of people, saved a lot of people's lives. But throughout that time period, he did not understand and realize that we all need a little bit of help ourselves as well. And in this episode, we discuss the spiral that he took in his own mental health and what ultimately ended up leading to him committing suicide. But fortunately, it's probably the only unsuccessful thing he's ever done in his life. And he was brought back to life. He has a new lease on life. And we were able to sit down and have this conversation. So this is a pretty fascinating one. It's pretty heavy. And it's just part of the process that we all need to do to start talking about our own mental health, how we can help each other, how we can ask for help without, and it's not a sign of weakness. And we could start breaking the stigma. For our law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, all of our first responders, military veterans and all that, what does this look like and how can you get the help? Well, that's something that we all strive to be better at and there needs to be better services. This is part of Rick's mission in life now is to have these open conversations. It's been a part of my goal with this podcast is to have open, honest conversations about mental health and what can we do system-wide to help people with their trauma. So thank you very much for, for tuning in and having a listen. I hope we all learned something. And Mr. Booker's uh, contact information will be below, and he is available to speak to anybody who wants to as far as first responders go. So thank you very much, everyone. Take care. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks this for is, having me. It, this is insane how all of this happened. And I want to give a little background and a little context. Yeah, you're going to have to because nobody knows. Right? Our history. Right? So a few days, a couple weeks ago, I'm dropping my son off at school. And one of, I've got the little spot, the podcast app on my phone. And it dings that there's a new episode being released of my favorite podcast. Um, uh, Andy Stumpf, Cleared Hot. And that's my favorite podcast. And I see the name Rick Booker on it. I'm like, that's a strange coincidence. I know a Rick yeah, Booker. It has to be the same. It has to be the same. <laughs> and then I start reading the bio. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm very confused. And I'm reading the bio and I go, okay. And it talks about a 27, 27 years, 27 mm-hmm. year veteran of the Scottsdale Fire Department um, who committed suicide. And... I was sitting there and I, 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 I pulled over immediately and I was like going, wait a minute. So I started reading through and I started, and then I immediately hit play and I started listening and holy shit, it's Rick, but you're on a podcast talking mm-hmm. and the description says committed suicide. Right. So I listen all the way through and I have to, <sighs> we, we have a lot of parallels in life. And so I'm, I'm, the, the way we know each other is, and again, my, my mind is going a million miles an hour thinking of all the different things and all that. And we know each other because back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we rode sport bikes together. Yeah. We raced out at the Wild Horse Pass or whatever it was called back then, Firebird Raceway. Firebird, yeah. We, we, rode, we rode motorcycles. We rode all around the state of Arizona. We, mm-hmm. we rode 
and had a good time for quite a few years. Yeah, with probably the the best sport bike club that's ever Amen. existed. Phoenix Sport Bike Club. It was awesome. Amen. It was a good so time. Cool. It was such a good group of people too. We weren't stupid, you know. Well, yeah, and what what people listening to this aren't going to realize is that yes, we were a sport bike club, but we were kind of the responsible yes. sport bikers. So we required people to wear their gear. Yes. Um, and you had to you had to show up at the pavilions, yep. car and bike show, in person to to get access to the the website and the forum, which showed where we were going to be riding. Otherwise, nobody knew where we were going to be. We were a closed group. Yeah. We didn't, no stunts in the city, no wheeling, right. no no doing stupid stuff. Yeah. We went out to the twisties and rode and had a good time. Yeah. And we had some of the fastest sport bikers <laughs> in, in the Southwest in the club. I sure. was... Um, I left for the Air Force about in 2002, and I remember the leader of our group, Will Darton. Mm-hmm. Um, I was finally catching up to him on the track because yeah. I'd only been riding for a few years. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to say, though, was is that you were amazing. You were a fucking rocket out there. You, I remember I've got, I've got pictures somewhere in here. I was going to look them up, and I've got pictures of you dragging your hands and your knees and <laughs> dragging your hand around corners. Yeah. Just insane stuff back then. Yeah, I, um, in pretty much everything in my life, I, I take it to 11. <laughs> if it'll go to 10, great, but I, and I've said it before, if it'll go to 11, it, it will. And I, I did that with the club. When, when Will moved uh, across the country, I took over as president of the club. Okay. Um, and then when things really started kind of getting out of hand in the, in the canyons, um, we decided that we needed to do something at the racetrack. Okay. Um, and that was a turning point for, for the club in a lot of ways. A lot of the people that were riding really fast in the canyons did take it to the track. Yeah. And we kind of never went back. Right. That's when I was in the Air Force and gone, but yeah. I stayed active on the forum for a right. little bit. And it was no more no more twisties. It was all Laguna yeah. Seca. Uh, there was I mean, one in New Mexico. I can't remember the name of that one. Uh, yeah, in, uh, in Deming. Yeah. Uh, I forget what that was called, but yeah, yeah, we we uh, travel all over the the Southwest and go to track days, and then when I got involved in racing, that it was that was an an avalanche. <laughs> you know, we we put a group of I think about ten of us together, and we all got racing licenses one weekend, nice. and um, and we started racing, and then I before I knew it, I won a heavyweight superbike championship my nice. first year as an amateur do you still ride by any chance i have a i have a vespa okay <laughs> rail in the corners of that baby playing that yeah uh riding a vespa is actually scary oh i'm sure it, these little 12 inch wheels that it feels like you're you're riding in a shopping cart or something <laughs> but um, got that as a as a um Kind of a runabout to go with a class a motor coach that okay. lynn and i are going to pick up here in about a year nice and and we're going to travel the country so i'll go into that but uh yeah sport bike racing um really took off and i got i got invited to assist with the new riders clinic with road race southwest okay and then before i knew it i was the lead instructor and then i was rewriting the curriculum and getting ready to to take a leave of absence from the fire department because I had gotten my AMA pro license. Nice. And I was going to, I was going to go race pro for a year. Uh, so in 09, the plan was to, 
I had actually gone undefeated in 09. I, I was racing my, my um, Yamaha R6 in three 600cc classes. Okay. The 750 class and three 1000 classes. That must have been one hell of a built R6. Uh, it actually wasn't it, because it had to be super sport legal, which okay. is the, like the slowest version of, of the middleweight class. Um, but in the categories that, that it was allowed, I ran slicks. Ah, okay. So the engine wasn't. You know, it was intake and exhaust, really. It was the riders. And a superior suspension setup. Gotcha. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I, I had a ton of track time because I was teaching. So it was it, I, I was on track all day from when it went hot to when it went cold. Um, so, yeah, in 09 from January until May, I had gone undefeated. I won 27 straight races. Nice. Um, and I was racing against... AMA guys okay. on leader bikes, and I've got great um, onboard video on YouTube of a race on Main on Firebird Main, and there's an AMA pro that's that's trading leads with me every <laughs> lap. He would roar past on the straight because tunnel horsepower. Oh yeah, oh yeah, on a leader bike, yeah. But then uh, on the return road, which is totally twisty. I would always catch him and I would pass him before the last corner. So halfway through this race, I'm thinking, okay, where, where is Tom passing me in relation to the start finish line? And I realize he's passing me after the start finish line mm. every time. So I knew if I can, if I can get into that last corner first on the last lap, I'm going to win this race. And we swung, we swung leads like, seven or eight times just over and over and i had the i had the camera facing backwards so i got a, i got great footage of him just punching the, the top of his tank at the finish of the race so anyway great times racing motorcycles until um uh, may of 09 i actually crashed three times in the same day that's not good no um I usually always got great starts. I, I actually, I'm really analytical about things. I, at some point, I actually sat down and identified 21 different things that go into a perfect launch okay. on a motorcycle. So if I were a drag racer, I, I would have probably cleaned up at that because I could always get really good starts. For whatever reason, I bogged this one. A buddy of mine, Zach, was in front of me. I sat behind him for a few laps, and this was on Firebird East. And I identified a section of the track where, where he had a weakness, and I, I knew I could exploit it and get past him. So when the time came, I let a gap develop between me and him, and then I put a just a savage run on him, and he low-sided right in front of Ooh. me. Um, and I was closing in on him at you know probably a good 10 or 15 miles an hour faster than he was going. And by the time he fell, I was, I was pretty much on him, and I... I ran over him. So I broke his pelvis with my wheels. Yeah. I went over the bars, crashed, um, destroyed a helmet, ground the leathers um, all the way through on my left knee, and had a bike that was in a pile in the, in the runoff in the gravel. Crash truck comes out. Puts the bike in, 
gives me a ride back to the pit and my crew put the bike back together because I had spare body work, spare clip-ons, levers, foot pegs, everything. And, and it kind of needed it. Yeah. They put all that <laughs> shit on. Uh, but I also had a spare helmet. Okay. And I mentioned this in the, in uh, another episode, but um, typically if you damage a helmet to the point that it's out of service, your racing weekend is over. Absolutely. Uh, because it, they give you one tech sticker for your helmet. Okay. And they don't give you a second one. But because I was an instructor, I had all these friends in the in the community and one of the guys came over and my spare helmet happened to be sitting there on the table and he said, okay, your helmet good? Got your spare leathers? You need anything? No, I think I'm all right. And I went back out and raced. And you didn't have any injuries at that from the first one? My left boot had actually, my the sole of, of that left boot, the insole felt wet. Okay. When I got back into the paddock and I and I took my boot off and I realized I just pretty much filled my boot up with blood from my left knee. So being a medic, mm-hmm. I treat myself, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. bandage everything up. I've got spare leather, spare boots, spare helmet, everything. Um, go back out, get kind of a poor start again, but I'm I'm running okay, maybe the top three or something, and. I went for the front brake going into the slowest corner on the course and it, it was hitting something. I was getting brake pressure, but it was, it was like hanging up on something. So I run off into the, into the gravel again. I whack the tire barrier. I damaged my spare helmet, damaged some, some parts on the bike again. What had happened was when they replaced the clip on, when they put the throttle tube back on, they didn't, there's a little, a little detent in the clip on okay. that the throttle tube is supposed to seat on and lap after lap, twist and wide open throttle. The detent wasn't in the little gotcha. recess. So that whole throttle tube twisted and on a Yamaha, those, the throttle cables that come out of that obstructed the travel of the okay. brake lever. So short story long, have, have kind of sort of brake failure, crash the bike again, back into the pits. I'm out of helmets, <laughs> but my buddy Philly brings his his spare helmet over, um, get the bike back together, go out again after lunch. Was anything telling you to stop? No, and I, I don't have that in me. I know. <laughs> I, I mean, that's... And at that point, I was I was leading seven class championships and the overall. Um, the following Tuesday, I was slated to go to a track day at Laguna Seca. Okay. Um, and so, I was also this is when GoPros were new. All right, right. I had right, right. the first generation GoPro. I I was actually putting together a plan to form my own high perform high performance riding clinic. Nice. Which would use GoPros mounted to my bike front and rear the rider's bike facing them so they could see their body position um and then i'd have an assistant track side like a corner worker videoing so and then we'd come back into the into the classroom and do video analysis and all that so so all these things are going so driving forward was 
was the focus. There was no, like, never consideration that you don't have that stop button. I should just not do this. You don't have that stop button built into it. I don't. I don't. (laughs) So I go back out after lunch, get a poor start again. I'm running fourth behind three of my buddies, and and those guys were running pretty much nose to tail. There were it was very compact group. Do do about the first four or five laps. I crank on the throttle to make sure that the thing isn't rotating. Brakes are working. Everything's good. I, I feel fine. Uh, so I line them up for a pass going into the slowest corner of the track onto that straightaway. And I'm thinking I'm at least going to take a, I'm I'm at least going to take the the last guy in the group, or I'm just going to pass all three of them <laughs> depending on how this goes. So I get a raging run at them, doing about 110, 115 coming into into that turn and I go for the front brake lever and it comes all the way to the bar. That's not a good moment in your life. No brake pressure at all. So I have to decide, am I, am I going to bold over three of my buddies and have a catastrophic crash at this speed or quick swerve left, get all over the rear brake and try and get the bike stopped. I pick the latter option. Um, as you know, the rear brake does nothing. <laughs> I'm fishtailing through the, the gravel trap, and I hit the, the tire barrier head-on this time at about 90. Ugh. So it tore the front end of the bike off. The forks, the, the, the headstock was actually torn completely off of the bike. Uh, the bike and I flew up and over the fence, the outer fence mm. of Firebird. And I fractured um, my left ankle, my left femur, and my neck in two places. Mm. That ended my day. <laughs> that ended your day. <laughs> yeah. That'll end anybody's day. Yeah. So that was um, recovering from that was my first experience with PTS. It was also my first experience. Well, it was my second experience with addiction. Um, I had broken my back rock climbing in 03. So before we continue, if we wouldn't yeah. mind, we have jumped light years ahead. We have. So, and again, this is the sort of thing, just because we know each other and there's a history there. Yeah. Could you go back and just kind of give a little bit of explanation as to your background and, and what you're doing here? For sure. <laughs> that would be good. So, um, yeah, I was, I was born in Effingham, Illinois, adopted at four days old. Uh, eventually, early in life, moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and that's where I spent my, my time growing up. Um, kind of typical middle class family. We lived across the street from a golf course. So I grew up doing that, but I also did all the traditional sports that my dad gotcha. pushed me toward football, baseball, basketball, soccer, but I also played alto sax in the band. Okay. So I just, I did everything. I, I like from the beginning. I played I just, alto sax for two years as well. So as a kid, unbelievable. as a kid, though, it was, it was like in ju- elementary into junior high and all yeah. that. So, yeah, this was uh, this was junior high. I actually made first chair all city band nice. in Florida, Texas in middle school. So I was I was pretty good at it. Um, still love music. Um, haven't played sax in quite a while, though. Um, moved to Scottsdale, Arizona in 87. Middle of my freshman year, I was 14 years old terrible time to a lose all your friends back right. home and b try to break into some kind of a friend group here 
And it's not um, like today where you've got text messages and can stay up with everybody. No, it's not. A, it's it's you're no. you're done. So it was it was challenging, but I think in a way it was it was good because I I, I wound up with a lot of adult friends through bicycle racing. Okay, um, and interacting with them, I think, gave me some some social prowess, and and I was able to interact with my peers better than if I didn't have those adult friends. Um. And they also gave me a good dose of perspective yeah. too, because you know when you're when you're working with older people, you know you talk about your personal lives, mm -hmm. and they're they're talking about completely different things mm -hmm. and worried about completely mm -hmm. different things than I am, and it, it just kind of put things into perspective. Um, so yeah, I grew up working in, in bicycle shops here in the valley, and. Um, yeah, I got into bicycle road racing when I was 14 and abandoned all the other team sports. Okay. Actually abandoned music too. So I was... That's what grabbed I, you. It did. It did for sure. And the the thing about bicycle road racing is that it's actually a team sport, despite what it what it kind of looks like on the, on the outside. Uh, and having the team sport background really helped me okay. with, with cycling um, because I I knew how to lead, but I also knew how to follow. Mm -hmm. And those things, those skills are important in life. Very much so. And later in my career were paramount. So I'm racing bikes. I'm working at a bike shop. I do a ride along with one of the guys that works at the shop also. He's a, a Phoenix firefighter. Okay. And... All day on a Saturday, nothing happened. We, we didn't run a single call okay. until evening, and we were wrapping up after dinner, and they got a call for a working fire, which is kind of, it. it's somewhat rare. A working fire doesn't happen every every shift. Despite what people every think. Every week. It's, it's, you know, and for every actual working fire where you pull up and there's flames and smoke coming out of the house, you'll run five or six fires in quotes that are nothing. Gotcha. It's food on a stove or gotcha. it's a closed flue and a fireplace, something something like that. We pull up, there's smoke blowing out of the out of the front of this house. And uh, my buddy Hugh and his uh, crew go inside, put the fire out, come out, high five, take their gear off, and I'm thinking, holy shit, this this is it. Like I I I want to do this. Yep. And at that at that point I was I graduated high school. I was going to Scottsdale Community okay. College studying business to get a degree that I didn't know what to do with. Right. Like I, I just, I did that because my dad it was in the business field, and I thought that was the the right thing to do. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, if you you know, by the time I got into accounting, I realized, forget <laughs> it. Uh, this isn't this isn't for me. So, firefighting kind of found me as much as I found it. I walked down the, and I moved out of the house, walked down the street from my apartment to the nearest fire station and pretty much just asked them, are there any jobs here? And this was in 90, 90, like 92, 93. Okay. And Rural Metro is a private fire mm -hmm. protection corporation that contracted with Scottsdale at the time. In fact, they, that company started in Scottsdale back in the 50s, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. There was no Scottsdale Fire Department. It was all there Rural Metro. It was Rural Metro. Gotcha. The shirt said Rural Metro, but 
everything else looked like a normal municipal fire right, department. Right. The trucks were the trucks, the uniforms were the uniforms, our, our policies, procedures, protocols, all that stuff. It's just another fire department. Gotcha. But the city was paying this private company for, for fire protection. So I go into the fire station and they, they asked if I was an EMT. I said, nope. Okay, yeah, you got to get your EMT cert. Cool. I go to SCC, get my EMT, and I think we were actually in between semesters. Okay. So the timing was perfect. Gotcha. So I go, I get a spot in class. Um, went back to the station a semester later. Same captain is there. Are there any jobs here? Well, have you taken any fire science classes? Nope. <laughs> you could have told me Not, that a, yeah, a semester ago. I could have exactly knocked this out right. at the same time. I know. I know. <laughs> I could have done this months sooner. Uh, so, I, so I go back. Uh, I took fire hydraulics, which okay. is a class that they they give experienced firefighters when they're ready to drive the truck and set the pump uh, for a fire and get water out of the thing. And all That's that. the engineer position, correct? Exactly. I got a bunch of friends that are also firefighters. So. Okay. Yeah. So I take that class. Um, I was definitely putting the cart before the horse, but <laughs> I just, I, I've always loved science. Okay. Um, and to apply it to, to the fire service was, was perfect for me because it was something I was interesting and in, interested in. And when I get interested in something, it's on, like, I just, I'm a hundred percent all in. So I go back. I understand that completely. <laughs> I go back. Uh, there's a different captain on when I, when I happened back in and, uh, said, Hey, yeah, I, EMT, got a fire science class. Are you guys hiring? Yes, we are. So I got on as a reserve, and that's how you started back then. You, a reserve was a part-time firefighter. Okay. And they were used to supplement the full-time staff when there were fire incidents or big medical okay. calls or things like that. But then they also served um, a wildland role. So okay. We did wildland firefighting okay. a ton. Um, and then... At a certain point, once you've been in reserve long enough, you get shift qualified, and they'll, they'll start working you 24-hour shifts. Is the reserve position a paid position? Not unless you're working. So when you're not so on duty, it's, it's, it's unpaid. It's the craziest model, but, yeah, you're not paid unless you go on calls. Gotcha. But you're paid to go on drill. Um, if they need a, tr a truck shuttled across the city, you can pick up extra hours doing gotcha. that. But you could also do ride-alongs and get paid for for calls if you gotcha. want to ride along. Get the the on-the-job training and the experience. Exactly. Uh, so then I got hired full-time and went to medic school pretty quickly after that. And so so that I, how did you? Pardon me. I also became an EMT when I was in law enforcement. Was there a required period of time to you must be an EMT for a certain length of time before you get sent to medic school? Um. Yeah, at that point, you had to have an, um, a year of field experience okay. before you could go to medical school. I think that's actually changed. I, it has. Shameful and unimaginable that, that anybody with basically no field experience can walk up with a defibrillator mm -hmm. and drugs and treat people. Pretty weird. Um, anyway, I got into rock climbing pretty quickly after we moved here to Arizona. And at some point during a reserve drill, we were, we were doing ropes and knots. And I'm tying all these knots that, that they're 
calling out, hey, figure eight on a bite, figure eight, on, you know, figure eight follow through, bola and all this stuff. And I'm basically tying them without even looking. Gotcha. And my captain said, so you've been practicing or, you know, what's it? And uh, I've been climbing rock for a long time. So I, this is all real familiar to me. And he said, you should go to the, the TRT drills or the technical rescue team because they do mountain rescue and everything with rope. And I said, okay, cool. So I start going to that and you get paid to, as a reserve to go to those drills. Nice. Um, but I also started responding when they would have technical rescue calls. Um, and at that point I'm, I'm working at a Mexican restaurant and a bike shop. Okay. And I'm a reserve. <laughs> and you're a reservist. So I was hustling. Um, but being a reserve and, and becoming a firefighter was number one. That was my top priority. So I dedicated myself to it kind of like everything else I've done. I uh, got hired full time and typically a technical rescue assignment does not materialize for somebody until they've had at least like five or 10 years on. I was just going to ask how long had you been on? So you, so you went to, you got on full time, went to medic school. I, I actually, I got on full time and I was still an EMT. Okay. My first day as a technical rescue tech in an assignment was my first day out of the academy oh wow and the captain that made those decisions knew that i'd i'd been coming to drill and i had some skills and i i, I was highly interested in this and that i would probably be good at it you were proficient at what you were doing i was at least getting there you know at, as a as a probationary firefighter you don't know shit right really i mean you know how to put out a fire but <laughs> yeah there's there's so much uh, street knowledge that you have to know. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I had the fundamentals for sure. So from day one, I was a I was a rescue team. Okay. Um, which was great because that's where I wanted to be and that's what I wanted to do. It was tough though because I I was getting exposed to some pretty high level traumatic shit right away from the beginning of my career. So double-edged sword later in my career um it was still a double-edged sword because in a lot of on a lot of calls that we went on that were that were really crazy circumstances where one paramedic was going to get sent to do something mm -hmm. i was the one to do it because i had more experience than anybody there and i had started teaching again <laughs> um so i was an instructor for the for the east valley um, I did that for about the last 12, 13 years of my career. And so, bef before we go on, the, if you could describe what is technical rescue? Technical rescue is anything that a normal fire truck would pull up to and go, I don't know what the fuck to do here. Okay. So it includes things like trench collapse, okay. confined space rescue, high, mm. high mm -hmm. angle rescue of, of all sorts, um, a worker up on a power line, okay. power, stuff like that. Uh, a worker trimming a palm tree that gets stuck. Um, swift water. We've got a ton of flooding in the valley right, right now. Uh, so swift water rescue. And then um, our our bread and butter was mountain rescue. Okay. So Scottsdale is an, an urban city, but in the rural portions of it, where like in the mountain preserve areas, oh, yeah. they're proper mountains and a couple hundred miles of trail. So 
people go out onto those trails and, and get injured, have medical issues, mm-hmm. get stung by bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you name it, fall rock climbing. Um, and I handled all that stuff over the course of my career. How many times every single summer is some dumbass from Minnesota, you know, who brought a, you know, a bottle of water with them? Yeah. You know, that happens, what, probably two to three times a day, I would assume. At least. At least, like that legit but real the, numbers. The funny thing is it doesn't happen in the middle of summer. No, really? It happens on in spring and fall. Okay. Because during the proper summer here, everybody knows, like, <laughs> it's way too fucking hot to be out hiking. You're a moron if you do. For real. You, you just are. Yeah. People still do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them equip themselves well and, you know, take a gallon of water with them. Um, winter and spring visitors will show up and they and they will go out when it's in that... 80 to 85 okay. degree range thinking oh it's pretty nice and they they just they kind of underestimate it they're from flat ass nebraska yeah. where there's not a mountain in sight and then like i'm gonna go climb this little hill right. it's not little yeah yeah um so yeah those are those are a lot of the people that i that i rescued over the years gotcha now and i have a little bit of a background as well in this as well did you guys work with did you work with all the other teams was it like a a, a mutual i know there's mutual aid there is. So in 05, the city of Scottsdale formed their own fire department and gave Real Metro the boot. Okay. I didn't know it was that late. I didn't know it was 2005. It was, it was 05. There was a drive to make that change in about 03. Okay. Maybe early 04. <clears throat> but it failed, and then the city decided on their own. Okay. But, but they, they put it up to a vote first, and when it, when it didn't pass, that was when the city said, okay, we're— we're going to form our own fire department. Okay. So come 05, there are two different ways that that different cities assist each other with regard to, to police and fire. And those are mutual aid and automatic aid. Cities have to ask for mutual aid. Mm-hmm. So the dispatch center gets a call. They see it's uh, in a certain location and another city would actually be closer to to it to respond they have to call that other city automatic aid works like this and this is what started in 05 in scottsdale we became part of the valley-wide automatic aid system okay so when anybody called 911 in the valley with just a couple exceptions like indian reservation and a couple other communities um the closest unit would respond okay regardless of what color the truck was or what city it came from so if you call 911 from the, the far west border of Scottsdale, there are a lot of places where a Phoenix truck mm-hmm. will go mm-hmm. automatically on that call. So with technical rescue, when we were when we had rural metro, we worked a lot with SO, with Maricopa County mm-hmm. Sheriff's Department, and we used their air platform for, for rescue, which was uh Fox. Fox. Yeah. And that was actually the first helicopter that I ever repelled out of. Okay. And I did that in like 94. Okay. And then they upgraded. They got a Bell 407 that had a hoist on it. So that was my first hoist work with those guys. But we also worked with DPS, mm-hmm. which was Ranger 41. And we re- repelled exclusively out of that. They never they never ran a hoist while we were using them. They didn't get a helicopter with a hoist until about th- four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting 
I'm sure this is blowing people's minds right now because I've repelled out of helicopters and I've been lowered out of them with a hoist, like a lot more than I can even remember. Um, I always felt better repelling okay. because I had control gotcha. over the thing. Um, but that's that's viewed as a really archaic kind of old school thing. and As opposed to hoisting? Hoist, hoisting is much safer. Well... The, the whole reason I became an EMT, I was out on a call. I was out working just my regular road shift, and we got a call of whatever. Somebody was on an off-ramp, and I like I-10 and Chandler or Ray or whatever it was down in, down in the southern part of the valley. And it was like a fight in progress or something like that. So I parked my car, and I'm walking up and down, and I'm looking for this, and I'm actually putting effort into my job. And one of our medics just so happened to be driving past me um, on his way to another uh, – down to Tucson to cover a shift – and he goes, I'll be out with him real quick. And he's like, he goes, and he said this because he goes, what are you doing out of your car? I said, well, I'm looking for these people. He says, he says, no troopers do that. They just drive by, say there's nothing there and go on. He <laughs> goes, we, we want motivated people for Ranger. Have you ever thought about it? I said, not a day in my life. So he says, well, come on down and talk to us. So then I, I ended up just talking with our lead person. This is 10 years ago, uh, 2012. 2011-12, uh, I met with a guy named Dan Milan, who was the lead paramedic for, uh, he was stationed out of the, uh, the yeah. station up in Phoenix. Yeah. And I went and talked to him and he explained to me what to do. So I went and got my EMT. And then when I was an EMT, I got onto as a part-time SWAT operator or uh, as a on the SWAT team. And I was a crisis negotiator. And one of the things we had to do was become repel certified. Yeah. Yeah. I very quickly learned my ass ain't getting out of the helicopter. It's not happening. So I went to, I, I got Repel certified yeah. and it was terrifying to me. Uh -huh. So, and then I'd been, been running a bunch of uh, pursuits and everything. And I became very good friends with the Mesa air unit. And actually at the beginning of my podcast, uh, I have a little clip of one of my pursuits and it's from the yeah, Mesa air that. unit. And it's just yeah. something that I finally got it in there. And well, I was that, to get it. that was in me. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So it kind of sounded like you on the air. Yeah. On the radio. So, yeah. So that's one of my pursuits where they were throwing bales of marijuana cool. out, which yeah. we have not gotten there yet, which ties, ties into the cannabis world. But, um, <laughs> so I'm going on a ride along with Mesa air one day. And this is when I was, this was getting, the progression for me was going to be is go to EMT school, get on with Ranger. They'll send me through medic school because you can't mm -hmm. be a, you can't be an EMT. You have to be a medic yeah. and then just move over to Ranger full time. Yeah. So I was doing a ride along one night with a buddy of mine. And I said, Hey, do me a favor. He goes, what's that? I said, uh, bring it to 150 feet and just hover. I said, because we have to repel from 150 feet. He brought it to 150 feet over Falcon Field Airport. And I said, I looked down and I went. No, no, no. I said 150 feet, not 5,000 feet. <laughs> and he goes, dude, that's it. I said, I can't do this. Yeah. So I, I called up the lead paramedic and, and I said, Dan, and I said, I can't do this, dude. I said, I'm too terrified. I'm not going to waste space of trying, you know, you guys send me through medic school and me getting my medic yeah, card. It's a, big, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Okay. I said, so I said, thank you very much. So I, I kept my EMT for a few years, but, but you guys that were doing that out of helicopters is that's, that's next level stuff. Especially yeah, when you're doing the coming off of a mountain and, you know, and you're repelling off of a 10,000 foot mountain and now you're however many feet in the air. Right. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Um, oh, man. Yeah, I got a lot of stories. Um, in 05, there was actually a period of a couple of months where we had started working with Phoenix Firebird 10. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we were using all the Firebird airships and they had 11 at the time, mostly patrol, but. They, they had a fleet of, or a, a group of three that they used for rescue, and they were Augustas. And 
during that couple months, we were actually training with SO, DPS, and Phoenix. Okay. So we were doing Hilo ops almost every week. Yeah. Um, and with that volume of training, you can't help but but get good at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guys in Scottsdale quickly became the the best air rescue techs in the valley. So at the time, Phoenix was a, a jealous suitor, and they said, um, "If you're going to use us for Hilo ops, you're going to use only us mm. for Hilo ops." And when you use us, you're going to use Phoenix firefighters as, uh, as the techs. Okay. And our uh, our staff said, "No, you're not going to fly into Scottsdale and and uh, have Phoenix guys." work in the helicopter it's it's gonna have to be our guys so scottsdale fire was the the first outside first agency outside of phoenix to work with phoenix on their helicopter okay so they put us through their training which it, it was good you know I mean, it was on par with everything else um but we for whatever reason after 05 they opened a bunch of trails in north scottsdale and our call volume went through the roof. Mm. So I was I was flying helo missions multiple times a month, which for most guys in Phoenix, I'd say if they get one or two a year, that's all that's a pretty big deal. So yeah, it just became normal. Yeah. But working with a helicopter was definitely the most dangerous thing I ever did in the fire service. Really? By far. Because you've got 20,000 parts that are all spinning mm. and trying to come apart. <laughs> um, you've got the, the variables of wind mm. and weather and terrain and patient condition mm. and, and your own mindset. There's, there's just so many different things that, um, that are kind of out of your control. And if, if things go sideways when a helicopter is involved, something really bad is going to happen. Um, and if there's a mechanical problem and I'm on the hoist mm. halfway down, they're going to punch, um, they're going to punch a button and it's going to release and cut the winch Ooh, cable. That's not good. Yeah. Um, I never thought about that before. That's a matter of procedure. Yeah. And it's probably just ingrained into them as part of their training. Like, oh, this alarm went off. I have to hit that button. Yeah. And they can they confirm that, you know, the crew chief was the one to do it. And depending on what agency we were with, it, if we were rappelling out of the helicopter, there was a, a, a rope, like a, a harness system that was anchored across the, the belly of the helicopter. And there were levers to, to pull to detach it. Because if they're if that helicopter's flying along and the rope, the ninety foot rope that's dangling, gets hung up in something, they're stuck. Mm. They have to be able to punch it free. Valid point. Never thought um, about that. Yeah. So that that possibility was always kind of in the back of your mind. But so anyway, I with TRT and and having that TRT assignment adds that responsibility to the normal fire truck that I'm riding around on, mm-hmm. uh, and the normal medical stuff mm-hmm. that I'm doing as a medic. So we had a regular fire truck at our station and we ran all those normal calls, but then we also had a, uh, 
technical rescue support truck okay. that was loaded with all the equipment for that. So, How old are you at about this time when you're responsible for all of this? When I, when I started, I was 20 years old okay. as, a, as a reserve. Yeah. So by the time I was full time, I got got that assignment. I was I was about twenty three. And what people don't realize is everything you just said is not. It's not just going to work and having fun. You have to maintain proficiency. You have to keep up on training. You have to keep up on your gear. As a twenty three year old young man, that's a shitload of responsibility that you Huge. are responsible for. Huge. You know, on top of that, not understanding. You had said something earlier that, you know, starting at such a young age was a double-edged sword and start starting, you know, so fresh was a double-edged sword. And were you prepared at all? Were you given any preparation for that amount of responsibility for that amount of, of, you know, drinking from a fire hose? Sorry for the, for the fire I, pun. Yeah, but. I was, I was familiar with, with what was going to be involved with, um, an equipment maintenance, um, with regard to that, with regard to training, uh, with regard to running calls and, and putting out fires and saving people. But I had no idea what I was getting into right. from a mental health perspective. And there was there was nobody at that point that said anything about it. Right. So when you it's like um, it's like trying something some new green. You, as soon as you get it, you want to you want to try it. Or having a new gun, as soon as you get it, you want to shoot it. Having a new skill of, mm-hmm. of fighting fire, I wanted the world to burn. Yep. Because I wanted to be the one to put it out. Yep. I wanted the world to have medical emergencies so I could be the one to save them. Like bring it on. I want to do this. But then it really started happening. Mm-hmm. And the first few that you that you go on, it, it's exciting, mm-hmm. it's different, it's scary as hell. Um, your hands are, are shaking from the experience, but it's it's exciting, mm-hmm. and you and you want you start to want more of that. But as that piles up, eventually, in I think every firefighter's career, that pendulum swings from I I just want calls to I hope that the tones never go off again and yeah. I, know, I don't I don't want to run another call there's there's a, a swing that happens and pretty much all of my old friends that are that are still firefighters feel that way yeah. they're like dude if I never ran another call I'd be totally fine with it there's a mantra that's kind of beaten into there's a lot of parallels. So real quick here, um, I joined law enforcement and I got out of the military and joined law enforcement and then later on became an EMT. And one of the reasons I also became an EMT is, again, that one EMT that said, or medic who said something to me, but we had a call where, you know, if you're familiar with the Phoenix Valley at all, there's the northern and the southern part of the 202. Mm-hmm. And there was the accident happened at the southern part and not the northern, but fire got dispatched. It was a terrible, terrible accident. And the fire got dispatched to the wrong location just because yeah. the person calling 911 didn't know where they were. Right. So I got there and a, and a guy was down for about 15 minutes. And when fire showed up, they started started doing CPR on them. And I do not fault this firefighter at all. Um, I we were cops. We were there to, to make the scene safe, mm-hmm. get the bad guy. 
and then let the bravest come in. Or I can't remember. The bravest are the cops, the finest are the firefighters. I think that's the way it works. But this person was down, and they started doing CPR on him. And I'm thinking in my son, like, dude, he's been down for 15 minutes. There's no way he's coming back. And I looked at the firefighter, and he's, I mean, he's sweating bullets and doing CPR. And I said, oh, it's, it's maybe we, we, and I was kind of joking around, bad timing for, you know, gallows humor. I said, oh, maybe we should have done that. And he turns back and he looks at me and goes, that would have been a really good fucking idea. And went right back to work. And then that's when I kind of got the the mindset to maybe I need to do more. So where I was going with this is, is that the parallels and the similarity between law enforcement and EMS regarding the adrenaline rush are identical. And when I had my first, my, so when I became an EMT, I didn't have a preceptorship. DPS did not have, DPS did not have an EMT program. They had a medic program. So I used to go to my friends that were on the fire truck, say, hey, guys, I'm an EMT. I need supplies. And they would give me stuff. So the very first time I had my very, very, very first time to utilize my brand new skills, mm-hmm. um, I, what you said resonated with, I just wanted to run medical calls. I wanted to be the first one there. I wanted to be the one there so that I could tell my guys in the back, hey, you guys keep the scene safe. I'm going to work on this patient. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I had a save Oh my God, it was it's something else. Oh huh? my God, I, I, if, I, can I tell the story just real quick? Of course, yeah. It's, it's a, it's one. It wasn't my first save, but it was my, for lack of a better term, coolest. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a head-on in the downtown Phoenix area on the I-10. Gnarly accident. You, you know what they're like, and. I show up on there, you know, we're, it, it was in another district of DPS. So this district was calling for help from us. So we're coming in and I wasn't really familiar with that area. So um, they're saying, shut this down, shut down this, that down. The next unit didn't do this. I got on the radio says, I'm the next unit in. I said, I'm an EMT. I'm going to go to the scene in triage. And my boss knew this. He goes, uh, bring my, whatever my call sign was, Edward 619 up to the scene. So I show up to the scene and this was the, the, the rush that adrenaline you're talking about yeah. and not putting it together. I show up on scene. I have Phoenix PD guys there. I have my DPS guys. There's a captain there and there's all these people. I start saying, go to this car, do this, go to that car. Tell me who's talking. Tell me who's not mm-hmm. talking. Fire's nowhere to be found. Um, they go, th- they go, this one's not breathing. So I go running over to the car and I've got my, my medic or my EMT bag with me. And I can't, this car is, this car is a, it, it looks like a, a crumpled up Doritos bag yeah. and I can't get to the driver. So I climb into the back seat and it's summer. So it's a billion degrees out and I get an OPA in her mouth and uh, or an oral airway. And I start doing CPR, wrapping my arms around the chair and I'm doing CPR from behind nice. her. So wow. I'm, I'm in the car and the Phoenix guys are going, what do you need? What do you need? They're coming up to the window. What do you need? They said, the fire department's here and I'm doing CPR and I can hear her. she's starting to grunt a little bit. And I just continue to do CPR. The, the technical rescue guys showed up on scene and they go, hang on a second. And they throw a blanket over us and they started cutting the shit out of that car. Yeah. So I, we get her out of the car. I'm drenched in sweat. I get her over to the, um, uh, to the ambulance and I give a, as much of a report as I possibly can. And I'm, I'm shaking. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit. This was the, this was the humbling, the, the cool part, the adrenaline part. And then the humbling part, I, uh, everybody's coming up to me going, holy fuck, dude, that was amazing. And I'm like, that was pretty cool. So I'm walking back to my car. 
I mean, I'm a little guy. I'm only five foot seven, but I'm nine feet tall and oh, yeah. 600 pounds of muscle. Mm -hmm. And I go to my car, I throw my bag back in the back in the trunk of my car and I'm going back into the scene and everything's taped off and all traffic is stopped and people are recording with their phones and all that. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh, but I, I'm thinking I'm nine feet tall. These guys, you know, my captain comes over and says, holy shit, dude. And like everybody's high-fiving me and I'm walking, I'm walking. And there was this piece of car that was covered in grease on the ground that I did not see. My right foot hit it and I went, <laughs> Flat on my fucking back, right in front of everybody. Oh, man. And uh, I, I just kind of looked up for it, and I said, okay, all right, I'm humbled now. Humbling. I, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. But it's it's that adrenaline rush. It's that addiction. It's addiction. Mm -hmm. It's addiction to, to adrenaline. And I was going to say that I remember that, like, as a joking around back in the day when we were riding bikes, we would say, man, Rick is a total adrenaline junkie. And just because of the way you rode and, you know, the way you were, but it's that addiction to adrenaline is what it is. Yeah. And wanting, it, it, wanting to be the hero without wanting to be the hero. You want the recognition. You, you want to do it. You want to save that person. I didn't need any accolades or anything like that, but I wanted to be that person. Right. I wanted to be that person to show up go to the call, save the person. So, I mean, and I, under, I understand that addiction. Here's the weird thing about that is that after a while, there's, there's actually no adrenaline. Right. So I did it 27 years. I, th I think, I think probably about after year 15, okay. it would, it would take something very out of the ordinary to, to get a rise out of me, to, to get that adrenaline going. And so I went to medic school uh, shortly after I got hired full time. But a short time after that, I got wrangled into precepting new paramedics. Okay. And at some point, they somebody somebody said, "You're just so calm. Mm -hmm. How do you stay so calm?" Mm -hmm. And I I always told my my new medics, "You're not allowed to panic until I panic." <laughs> and they're like, "Well, that's going to be never." Well, then there you go. There you but, go. Yeah. At some point, the adrenaline kind of went away. And I still had, you know, that 10 or 15 years of having adrenaline involved in mountain bike racing, mm -hmm. road bike racing, rock climbing, work. Um, so at that point, I started having to do extraordinary things just to feel normal, like to, to actually get some kind of an adrenaline response. What does that, that sound a lot that like? That would make me feel like a normal person. What does that sound a lot like? The elevating levels of addiction. You know what? It does, this, this much doesn't work anymore. Right. I'm going to do more. Yep. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. Um, racing motorcycles, I mean, there's, a, there's an amazing sensation um that goes on sitting at the on the start line of a race whether it's a, a motorcycle road race a bicycle race a mountain bike race um you have this this feeling like you're a like you're a caged animal get just getting ready to to launch and that was kind of the mindset when i told you there's 21 different things involved with a perfect launch of a motorcycle mindset was that yeah. you you had to feel like you were the bull 
with a rider on your back barging against that gate waiting for the cowboys to pull it open um so i chased that feeling yeah and as much as i felt that on the start line of a motorcycle race after the green flag waved or the light went off and i went through turn one i was thinking about what i was going to have for dinner that Mm -hmm. night i was i was thinking about the weather like I, I was in that deep of a flow state with racing mm-hmm. that I could completely relax in that. And that was flying into a corner with the rear end sliding because you're backing <laughs> it in um, and then steering with the, with the rear end of the bike, exiting a corner right. on throttle, sliding the rear again, like just being being that comfortable in that kind of a flow state. And when I could really do that at work, that, that was when I was able to do probably the most good. Yeah. Because instead of having tunnel vision, it opens everything up and you're free to, to, to take everything in and realize everything that's going on around you. It's like a heightened sense of Mm -hmm. situational awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think at some at some point, trauma trumps that, and in a way, I think if you're if you're not amped up on adrenaline, and you're relatively calm, because you're aware of everything around you, you you are more susceptible to trauma. And for me, one of those things was being on a cardiac arrest call on and working on a patient that's clearly gone right but having the family in the other room the new guy that's doing chest compressions is tunnel vision just looking at the patient they they're not aware of the color of paint on the walls Mm -hmm. or the family that's around or anything that's happening other than that patient but for me i'm taking it all in I look up and, and on the mantle, you know, we're in a living room on the mantle. I see the, oh, that's him. Yeah. Uh, up in the mountains in a picture with his family. And, oh, the wife is in the next room crying and I can hear her. So, yes, I had this kind of a, there's kind of a protective mechanism when you can get into that flow state. But at the same time, in an odd way, it makes you more aware of other things. So for me, that I kind of let the trauma in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that we can sit here and talk about really cool war stories and times we saved people, but it's all trauma. It's death, destruction, chaos. It's the worst of the worst. It's one of the things that was ingrained in me is that we were responding on somebody's worst day. Yeah. And you have to be at your best. And you have to be at your best. Yeah. And so you're going through all of these things and you're responding to all of this. And was there any sort of focus on or um, I, I'm speaking from five years of separation in law enforcement, so I'm not 100% certain what goes on anymore, but I do know there are things. Um, was there any – when you would have a, a massive incident – totally traumatic was there any sort of debriefing was there any sort of let's sit down and talk about it a critical incident stress management management or anything like that the the cism concept first came in 
in the rural metro years, probably I would have to say around 2000. Okay. So I'd been on for, for seven years at that point, piling shit up. Um, Peer support and CISM is, is well-meaning. I think that um, in, in the, in their hearts, those people are, are, are definitely exposing themselves to more trauma, but they're doing their best to help, help their peers. Um, but it's got a dangerous side and that is the firefighters that go through the, the debriefing after the pediatric drowning at the station and the captain keeps the truck out of service for an hour Everybody gets showered, cleaned up, relax. Let's sit around the table, talk about everything that went well, just get some positive reinforcement, check in with everybody, and then that's it. Yeah. And then the captain tells his engineer to, to go out and press the button, and what that means is go out and tap AOR, available on radio, or AIQ, available in quarters, and that puts the truck available to run the next call. Which could be a pediatric drowning. And it could happen right after they touch the button. So I think that firefighters a lot of times will go through those debriefings or hot washes or diffusings or whatever they're calling it that month or year. Yeah, whatever the buzzword is. And they think, well, we we went through the debrief. I'm, I'm good, right? But then... When they get off work the next morning, instead of um, having a beer at 6 o'clock with dinner, they have a martini at 10 o'clock in the morning Uh after the kids go to school. Uh Um, And they they remember the call. They Uh think about the call. They can maybe see their kids at the same age as the patient that they just lost. Um, There are those those special fucked up calls that hit us just right. And it's like, they know your weakness. Um, so I think the danger with, with that is people don't seek further treatment. They they don't, they don't reach out for help. They don't talk to other people after that initial debriefing. So that's a dangerous thing. Unfortunately, and I've said this before, if you fly over the United States, especially if you fly coast to coast at night, you can see huge swaths that are just dark. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, a few lights and you're looking down there like, what is down? People live down there? <laughs> yeah, nothing there. Middle of nowhere. Um, that's, that's where volunteer fire departments and volunteer EMS are providing service. And if you think they have a mental, a robust mental health program for, for their members, they got nothing. They would be ecstatic to, to have somebody trained in, just in peer support. They would be ecstatic to have an actual just EMTB. Many of them are just yeah. first responder training. They're not yes. even EMTs. First aid, yeah. yeah. And basic first aid, and yeah. they're, they're doing it all on their own. Right. So we, we just have these massive contrasts in the U.S. between – having resources and not having resources. Like I mentioned earlier, the automatic aid system, that is a like a world-renowned, that is a model that people in departments all over the world look at and are amazed when you explain, well, yeah, we're all, 
you know, there's there's whatever greater than ten cities, and they're all linked together. Yeah. If you dial nine one one anywhere, just look the the closest unit goes, and it it just it defies understanding. Yeah. But it's something that's become so ingrained in us here. It's like normal, like whatever. Um, anyway, that 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 wide range of contrasts exists in in the mental health care for our first responders too. So that's kind of that's getting rid of the stigma, decreasing the stigma um, of people stepping forward and saying, hey, I need some mental health care. I need, I need assistance is one of the, that's like my main mission right now. Yep. And how I came to that was um, in 2019 on September 12th, I checked into a luxury resort in Scottsdale and administered a lethal dose of three different narcotic medications. And I killed myself. Uh, and I say I killed myself because I didn't try. Um, I actually did it. I set up an IV. I injected the meds. And had I been left for probably another four minutes, I would have not been revived. Um, but as fate would have it, PD responded. They gave me all of their intranasal Narcan. And then Scottsdale Fire, unfortunately, was the department that responded and they saved my life. I had reached a point in my life where I was getting mental health care and it just wasn't sufficient. I, I thought I was getting what I needed, but I wasn't. Um, and I had a, just a, a lot of trauma, a lot of, I, I can't drive around Scottsdale without seeing ghosts. When you work 27 years somewhere, every, it's everywhere you go. Yeah. There's the house that burned down yeah. with the lady in it, with her kids that were upstairs. Um, there's the intersection where the guy was trapped under the car. Um, just, you know, oh, everywhere I go. And over time, I didn't seek the mental health care resources that I, that I really needed um, because I didn't know. You were ignorant to it, but just because you, it was yourself. Yeah. You didn't yeah. realize the downward spiral. Right. And I was, I was exhibiting a lot of signs and symptoms of PTS without even knowing it. Yeah. So I, spent... I, I I appreciate the fact, and I apologize. Um, you know, post traumatic stress disorder. It's not a disorder; it's a reaction. It's yeah. PTS. It's post traumatic stress. Yeah. And the problem is with that line of work is the event just doesn't happen yesterday. It's going to happen again today, and then there's going to be another mm -hmm. one tomorrow, and then there's going to be another one tomorrow, and it's just going to keep compounding and compounding and compounding itself on top of itself. Yeah. And there's no one to step in and say, hey, maybe we need to, you know. Well, that's what we need is somebody yeah. to step in and, and say, hey, we need help. What, um, how did you, no, I, I, my question is this, is leading up to that day, 
what could have been done, do you think? I think in in the fire department anyway, the company officer or the captain is the the leader of the station, the, le- the leader of the crew. And company officers have got to have their eyes wide open to what's going on with their crews. But even below that, on a on a peer level, we we need training in this. I mean, the fire service gives you so much training mm-hmm. in an, an amazingly wide range of of different emergencies and situations that that you show up and you stabilize, and it's everything from a cat in a tree mm-hmm. to uh, weapons of mass destruction or an active shooter incident and everything in between. When I went through my fire academy, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no guidance right. with regard to mental health or what resources were available. We need to start with our academies Agreed. in the fire department. We need to start with our academies in the law enforcement arena and not only make new recruits aware of what PTS is, what the signs and symptoms of it are, but what resources are available for those people. But here's the key. In order to be able to do that last thing, the resources have to be available. Good resources. Yeah. Not just your little EAP where you get eight sessions and okay, you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a challenge. There's, there's at least something there. You know, there's there's mental health care there, but it could be improved upon for sure. The problem is it costs all this costs money. It costs money. You know? Nobody nobody wants to pay for anything. Right. You know, gov- I mean, government officials they want to, you know, support their own little things that they want to do, but they don't they don't recognize the fact that again, when something happens, we need our first responders to show up with clear heads. With we want if if we're going to demand perfection from them in the blink of an eye again whether it's law enforcement or fire service we're going to need to support them a hundred percent yeah and that's before and after the call and that's not emasculating them not Mm -hmm. you know part of the stigma has been at least and again i'm speaking from the law enforcement side if i would have walked in and said i'm having any kind of issues your badge is taken your gun is taken you're immediately put on administrative leave Why the fuck would anybody go when, when, and I'm sure, and I'm sure, correct me if I'm wrong here, that, you know, firefighting probably became part of your identity as well. A hundred percent. It's the same with cops. And when you take that part of that person's identity away, they're not going to want to step up and and get any help in any way, shape or form. It's it's the worst thing you can do to somebody in the, in the first responder career is tell them that they can't be a first responder. Nope. Take them out of the car, take them out of the truck. So I think there are, there are strides being made, um, but we, we need to decrease that stigma and eliminate it entirely of stepping forward Agreed. And, and asking for help yeah. and, and make it, make it non-punitive. I mean, it, it feels like you're being punished Agreed. When, you, when you step forward and do that. And then, I'm sure it's the same with LEOs, but your reputation is all you have. And if the only thing you're known for is stepping forward with, with PTS, you're kind of screwed. You're become a pariah. You think you're going to sit in front of a 
an oral board in front of you know three chiefs and and somebody from HR and and go through a promotional process <laughs> with any hope of actually getting it? No. No chance. Leading up to that incident, what were the if you're able to look back, what were some of the things that were warning signs to yourself that you could have possibly, you know, recognized? I think for me, um, isolating myself socially was a, was a big was a big thing. It was a big part of it. I just did not like being around people. Couldn't stand being around crowds. Avoided that at, at all costs. Um, I avoided things that that reminded me of calls that I'd been on. Um, but that's damn near everything. <laughs> it, you're exactly right. It's hard to do. I mean, for, for me, the, the call that, that did me in was a confined space rescue in a sewer. So smelling sewer gas, which isn't all that common, but as soon as I smell that, even today, really, to some extent, it takes me right back. Yeah. Um, but for the longest time, just seeing a manhole cover or, um, or a, a hatch entryway, diamond plate hatch to a, to a confined space, like put me in a tailspin. So social isolation, avoiding things that, that reminded me of, of traumatic events. Those were big things. Um, I used alcohol as a coping mechanism. I mean, alcohol is ingrained into the culture. Absolutely. It's ingrained into LEOs. It's ingrained into firefighters. It's yeah. ingrained in the military. It's in, that's what you do. Yeah. And guess what? You, you do it when you're happy and when you're sad, you do it, you drink when you're partying, yep. but you also drink after, a, you know, the funeral. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's a huge part of us our society and it was it was one of my coping mechanisms um a lot of flashbacks um some of that stuff was me playing replaying calls in my head like if i had done this different and this hadn't happened that way we probably could have saved them kind of stuff um but also just just thoughts that would creep into your mind and and you'd find yourself seeing, feeling, and smelling things that weren't there. One of the things that caused my downfall in law enforcement was trauma built up. There was a traumatic uh, law enforcement shooting that I investigated. And one of the things that I don't comprehend is why can some people, and this, I'm stealing a quote from a, a police psychologist, is why can some people walk through the fire and not get burned? Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that they don't get burned. I just think they cope with it differently. And my downfall came from a traumatic situation where it began that, that spiral of, I, there's no point, what's the fucking mm-hmm. point of doing this? You know, it's all the goddamn same. There's nothing different. And I started my own self-destructive path of way too much alcohol. Same thing. And if and, and I was in a, a point where I was a detective, so I would get called out for days at a time and, and go all around the state. And I would come home at 6 o'clock in the morning and have two glasses of whiskey. Yeah. Like it was nothing. Yeah. 
And I mean, you know, I think the best thing to do with emotions is just stuff them down deep and not talk about them, right? That's that's what we're supposed to do, right? <laughs> that's, that's what everybody in the in the community would have you do. Yeah. Just as a matter of course. And 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 that's that's that just has to end. It does. There's I think that there's there's a natural tendency toward that if when you have something like alcohol it's such a big part of society and such a big part of of um, social gatherings mm-hmm. that it, and it's so available but I just I, I wish that that supporting each other was was the default I wish that that was the go-to I wish calling somebody to talk to somebody I got over 200 firefighters on my phone I could have called and I didn't because when I got to that point um, I just wanted the, the suffering to end. I just, I never wanted to run another call. I never wanted to see another dead body. I wanted to stop having the flashbacks. I wanted to, I just wanted it all to go away. And right up until the time that I pushed those two syringes, I didn't think I had PTSD. That's the scary thing. Were you receiving uh, any kind of counseling or anything like mm-hmm. that? You were. Yeah. But I was only going to a psychologist. Okay. I was going to a counselor. And I had started going to that counselor after my motorcycle accident. Okay. You had you had said in the very beginning that that was yeah. kind of the, where you yeah. had your first issue of right. PTSD. And I was having flashbacks of crashing my motorcycle every night as I was falling asleep. So went and got some help with that. Um, but I didn't get diagnosed with anything. Let me ask you, were you going to the counselor to be able to hop back on the bike and not have any of those issues or were you basically fooling yourself or were you going back to the counselor to do the work? I wanted the counselor to make the symptoms go away. And when the flashback stopped, Guess what I stopped doing? You stopped going to counseling. <laughs> right. We're good to go. Yeah. Mount up. However, I did go back after a stack of really shitty calls at one point. And I was the proponent of mental health care on my truck. We had a, like, we had just a nightmare month at one point. And I, I told the guys, hey, I'm going in for a fucking tune-up during our four-day or because I... This is getting to be way too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And you guys ought to look into it too. Uh, fuck that. I'm okay. Away. You're a puss. Whatever. Okay. All right. I'm I'm doing it. And it, I can tell you that it helps. Tell you from experience. And um, to my knowledge, you know, none of the other three guys on my crew ever went in for any kind of mental health care. So... It's discouraging. Anyway, after, uh, so I spent a week in the ICU after my, uh, my hotel incident. And after that, I went to a place called the IFF Center of Excellence. And that's the International Association of Firefighters. It's our union. Mm -hmm. I see the stickers on lifted pickup trucks all day long. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, So the COE does 
inpatient mental health care and and substance abuse uh, recovery. So I spent 39 days there. And, Where's that located? Uh, Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Okay. So tiny little little town out in the middle of nowhere. Very cool place. Within about 15 minutes of, of my first one-hour appointment with a psychiatrist, I had been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, severe anxiety, and PTS and complex PTSD. And I still didn't believe it. You're just in denial about it. Completely. Uh, as days went by and I learned more about what PTSD even is, I started to come to the realization, okay, spending 20 hours a week training on a bicycle isn't necessarily normal right. for everybody. Spending 20 hours a week shooting archery, and I got into uh, archery competition. Um, spending that much time alone doing that, something's up. Right. Um, and then all the other signs and symptoms. So I, I came to acceptance pretty quick, but it took me a while to, to finally call my fire chief and say, I don't think I can run calls anymore. I think I'm done. So that was one of the hardest phone calls I've ever had to make. Because it's ingrained in your identity. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how you can crash a motorcycle yep. twice pretty hard and get back on and race again that day. Might have been a little brain damage on the first one, which led you getting back I, onto the bike two more times. Yeah. <laughs> I say yeah, that jokingly, but... Some, well, yeah, I mean, I, I damaged two helmets. Yeah. I, had, I had two traumatic brain injuries stacked one on top of another. Yeah, within the course of one, a, an hour. And a third at the end of it because that third helmet got blown apart too. So I filed a I filed for retirement through uh, the PSPRS mm -hmm. through the, uh, for our pension uh, disability, but then I also filed a work comp claim. Okay. And to my knowledge, I'm, I was the first person to have a work comp claim for PTSD approved. Okay. Unfortunately, it was probably because of the magnitude of the incident. Right. Um, and that was a, that was a long, difficult process that involved independent medical examinations. Mm -hmm. Did three of them. Mm -hmm. Um, to prove, yes, I do have this, and it should not went, take went through that process. Three fucking IMEs to go through to it shouldn't prove that. But I understand why it does. Yeah, and I had the, I had the professional and personal support that I needed to to go through those and not have them bring up additional problems. Right, because those were those were traumatic too. Because I had to pretty much relive, you know, what I had gone through three times. Um, so, yeah, that was a little over two years ago I retired. And I started writing a book. So my mission now is to eliminate that stigma. No. And make people feel like they can come forward and ask for help. And to also 
drive cities, drive departments, drive organizations to provide the resources that their members need for mental health. In the moment, on that day, was there anything that would have stopped you? A phone call. Okay. If I had just called another firefighter. Man, if I had just called somebody on my crew that day and talked and, and told them what was going on, that could have stopped it. Was it pride that stopped you from it? I think it was hopelessness. Okay. I didn't think there was any hope. I mean, that's what we need. We need something to do, someone to love, something to hope for and my hope was gone i i didn't think that i was ever going to get off a fire truck i didn't think i was ever gonna not lay there in in my bunk at the station with my with the covers pulled up over my head because i didn't want the red light that came on to shock me the way it does i just felt hopeless man and helpless. No. Because remember, I was going to a counselor. No. I thought I was doing the work and not getting any results. I just didn't know. I had no idea what what the work really needed to be. That that's the question I have. And is... the the problem with a lot of people that go that go to counseling is they're not honest with their counselor. Right. Because. The last thing you really want to do if when you when you've gone through trauma is talk about it over and over again. <laughs> Which I again I thank you for coming on here and oh, being yeah, open absolutely. and honest about it. But that's part of the but process. Yeah, it is. It's hard for it's hard for people to sit down and it's hard for people who are called upon to help people to sit down and receive help. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the one doing the rescuing here. Not you. I don't need rescued. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's the thing though, is that had I have had a supportive, I had a supportive boss for the job, but I didn't have a supportive boss re regarding the bullshit. Mm -hmm. And that's the yeah. sort of thing where I have no doubt that if I would have had a boss that stepped in and because what, what ultimately led down to is I was drinking and my wife, my wife and I got into a fight and uh, it was a verbal argument. And when she started walking towards me, I pushed her. And from that push, she, she was scared, had never happened. She didn't know what to do. Uh, she called 911 and I was arrested. Mm. And I was arrested as a cop by Pinal County Sheriff's Office. And I just had the number two of Pinal County Sheriff's Office on just last week and we talked about it. And he also knew about it in the past. But that's the sort of thing where if I just would have had somebody to say, you know, how's everything going, you know, just to talk. But at the same time, though, I want to be a warning for others to look out for. I don't want good cops to go through the same thing that I went through because they're too stubborn to recognize what's going on. And I'm just as sure you don't want firefighters to fall into the same traps. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is, is 
when you just continue to run those traumatic calls. I mean, like how it's, it's never ending. Yeah. There's, there's no turning it off. And, right. And it's, it's what we're there for. Right. I don't think that a lot of people realize it. Like you had stated earlier that, well, I forget what the number is now, but probably, what would you say? 80% of all firefighter calls are medical rescue car accident. Yeah, that's about right. That type of stuff, not an actual fire. Right. So you're, you're, you're seeing the 80% of the time you're doing the, the traumatic stuff you're doing. I mean, you know, the fires are the cool part where you get to gear up and go put out a fire. Uh, they, they are until somebody's in there. Right. Right. And, and I did plenty of that. Those are, um, yeah, those are, are career changing mm-hmm. and mentality changing for sure. Um, I just think that big cities do such a good job of, of equipping us with guns and ammo yep. and, and plate carriers and, and helmets and trucks and hoses and medical gear and turnouts. They just need to add mental health to this. It needs to be one of the protective, personal protective pieces of equipment agreed that's issued and until we change that mentality we're going to keep losing firefighters medics ems workers law enforcement military military veterans every day to suicide i believe the number is up right now from 22 to 28 as far as military goes it's just a never-ending revolving door unfortunately yeah what would in your opinion, what would wraparound services for mental health be in these career fields? You know, there's so many models of fire protection in the U.S., and they range everywhere from that small-town, rural, volunteer-only to volunteers supplemented with some paid personnel to full-time paid personnel in a small department or fire district to a big city Mm -hmm. and i think that it's it's got to be a tiered approach because the volunteer departments can't afford to to do anything anything however here's the funny thing that's not even really funny the fire trucks that are parked in the stations in some volunteer fire departments are some of the best trucks in the world Interesting. Because they get grant money. Mm, Okay. And they get a lot of it. So they'll get brand new trucks, brand new equipment. It's it's amazing that they're so well equipped, but there's almost no manpower to use it. But then there's, there's also no mental health care. Right. So I think something on a, on a federal level is the only thing that's going to solve that for volunteer type organizations above that when you get into like a fire district type of a thing and even big municipalities it's tax dollars that are that are doing this so that's kind of where i come in like if i can appear at a city council meeting somewhere or a fire board meeting somewhere and illustrate the need and the importance 
of mental health care for membership, that's my mission. I'm, I'm trying to drive that. So yeah, there in, in as that in the same way as there are so many different setups for fire departments, there are going to be different setups for mental health. Care. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, generally speaking is an MD and they can prescribe medicine right. and that provide a diagnosis. A psychologist will also be degreed, but they act more as a counselor and then they can do treatment modalities like EMDR, which was what was pivotal for me. The I, um, I can't remember what EMDR stands for. Yeah. EMD, EMDR is a, a method of reframing how we think about trauma okay. by reliving the trauma in a controlled safe setting with um, neurostimulus happening okay. at the same time so whether that's um, tactile or visual uh, visual there, there's a, a system of lights or a swinging item um, that kind of guides the eye to go from travel side to side um, for me, I use these buzzies. It's a tactile thing. It's like picture it holding your phone in your hand and, and it uh, and it's on silent, but it vibrates. Okay. Um, and these these buzzies that I'm holding in the palms of my hands during reliving and redescribing this trauma are sending neural um, stimuli to my brain. Okay. And they're they're buzzing back and forth. Okay. Um, there's a lot of information online about it. Um, what I can say is that that was what broke through for me in, in my recovery from PTSD. Um, couldn't have done it without my counselor. And Jen specializes in public safety. Okay. Um, she's some, probably one of the biggest groups that she's working with right now is Mesa SWAT. Okay. Um, and then she's, She's all. She's with um, Public Safety Crisis Solutions. Uh, they're based in Phoenix, uh, but she's also opening a, a private practice. Okay. Uh, and then my psychiatrist um, is with Community Bridges. Okay. All right. And Let's with them. Community Bridges just in in very late 2019 just opened this this branch that specializes in public safety i've heard about it i've heard about it i was i was their first patient okay yeah so my my doctor dr Chelio, um is amazing and he's worked with lots of my peers um so yeah i i've got a, a mild medicine regimen that i take um i've got a couple things that i take if i if i need them if i know ahead of time that i'm going to get into a situation where I'm going to be exposed to something mm -hmm. that's possibly traumatic. Um, I'm doing a hell of a lot better and I can, I can tell my story and I can actually get through it without just completely falling apart. And that was something I couldn't do a year ago. My podcast would not be my podcast if I did not mention cannabis at least once. Yeah. Um, I started using cannabis for my back injury, mm -hmm. my herniated discs and all that. And then I had a breakthrough one night regarding 
my PTS. And from that incident, and I was using cannabis for my back, and then I had this epiphany, and I was able to think about the instance that really, really messed me up in a way that I could go back and remember it and not relive it. Mm-hmm. And I was able to break it down, think about it, look at the circumstances. I, 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 it was one o'clock in the morning, you know, I was smoking weed and in my kitchen and all of a sudden I'm crying and I have no idea what the fuck was going on. And it was the sort of thing where it allowed me to go back and remember it, not relive it, not be engrossed in it. You know, if anybody who's ever experienced any kind of PTS flashback, um, it's reliving the situation to oh, where yeah. you can't get out. Yeah. There are a lot of different treatment modalities for, mm-hmm. for available for PTS now. Um, I support all of them. Yeah. What works for you and works for you. Here's why. The problem is that big that it doesn't matter to me what the solution is. We just need solutions. Amen. Um, whether that's cannabis, whether that's ayahuasca, mm-hmm. whether that's things that that are not covered by insurance or legal here in the U.S., uh, I don't. It doesn't matter. Psychedelics um, are they're making great strides. Agreed. Um, May I ask but, the question? Have you ever done any of those treatments? No, because EMDR got it. Okay, EMDR that was what. That's it. what was successful for you. Yeah. But it did take work because I went to dinner with a, an old buddy of mine that's that's been on with Phoenix Fire for over 20 years. And we're talking about this. And he opened up his phone and he handed it to me and there was a list. It's a list of like 20 things. So I start reading down the list and I realize, oh shit, these are all calls. Mm. They're, they're like brief descriptions, mm. like one-line descriptions of calls. And I, I said, holy shit, is this it for you? And he, he said, that's most of it. Okay. Have you started working on it yet? Nope. We haven't even gotten there yet. Um, but he started to use cannabis. Okay. And is having great results with it. I mean, I'm totally plugging. I would love to talk to him if he would ever, if he would ever come and sit down and talk to me. Yeah. I think the key to attacking PTS is having a toolbox and not relying on a multi-tool. Right. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, And for those that don't know, a multi-tool is like a pocket knife on steroids. (laughs) It's got pliers and a, you know, a knife blade and screwdrivers and all this shit in it. But are the are the pliers on that multi-tool actually really good pliers? They're there for in a pinch. No. Is the screwdriver like can you could you really, you know, work with that screw? No. It's kind of a catch-all thing yeah. that it'll it'll kind of it'll kind of work like you said in a pinch. But in the toolbox, you've got Maybe three different kinds of pliers, multiple different screwdrivers, and a hacksaw, and a, you know everything else. And those tools work very well for for what you use them for. 
So I think in the same way, we, we need to employ a toolbox when we're treating ourselves for, for mental health. And the pair of pliers would be preparation at the academy level. Yeah. When you first yep. come in here, yep. here's the pliers. Here's, here's your awareness. Now you know what, what to look for and who to go to for help. Okay, now here's the screwdriver. That's our EAP program. Mm -hmm. You can get care from a, from a healthcare provider that's in the network. It's completely covered. And by the way, it's completely confidential. That is a big hurdle for a lot of guys because Amen. You, you're worried that, yeah, if I, if I go forward and ask for help, everybody's going to know because it's going to get back to senior staff in my department and nobody can keep their mouth shut. And before I know it, you know, people are going to be coming up to me asking me, Hey, so that fire really fucked you up or, you know, how'd you hear that? <laughs> so that level of trust, um, in an EAP, there are legal consequences if a, a provider releases that information. Um, so that's not a, I'm here to tell people that, that going forward and using your EAP is, is not something that's going to be exposed to your organization. Your mental health is private in the same way that your physical health is when you go in for your annual medical physical. Does anybody in your department find out what your cholesterol level is or your blood pressure? No, it's the same thing. No. So screwdriver EAP, um, the hammer might be an interdepartment assigned psychiatrist who is dedicated to your city's fire department. That to me would be the the premium way to to take care of our people to have a psychiatrist on staff that's dedicated to the department and i think that that would work for a couple of reasons when you have familiarity with someone mm -hmm. who's been around mm -hmm. for longer than a month yep. um, that brings down a couple bricks out of the wall when you hear from a coworker that they went to this person and got some help and it was good. That takes down a, a few more bricks. When you see that people are being kept on duty, they're not being taken off of the car or out of the truck. Yep. They're able to continue doing the job that, that we all love doing. That takes the rest of the wall down. Unfortunately, not every department is going to be able to afford that. However, it, it's coming. It, it really is. That's something that I would love to advocate for. That's something even at the state level, you know, I would, yeah. I would love because mm -hmm. one of my functions in normal is to talk to lawmakers and that's what we do. And I would love to be a champion for serious mental health for our first responders. Yeah. And here's the thing. I, I did an annual medical physical every year. And in the questionnaire that, is on the clipboard that you're filling out, sitting there in the in the lobby waiting to go in, is a checkbox that says something like, I would like to speak with a mental health care professional. Okay. I checked it every year. Okay. 
and when I first started checking it, I was just, I was kind of fucking around just to see, is, will anybody even call me? Is anybody even going to reach out to me if I do this? Check it. Never did I ever hear back from a mental health care professional <laughs> after having checked that box every year that I went in for my physical. Then what's the point? Exactly. Exactly. Well, why even have it there? Right. That's insane. I think there was no resource. Right. If it's if it's just a you know an unfunded mandate or whatever the case may be, where they're just just a little box. Yeah, it's a dead end. During and post your incident, what was the support like at the firehouse or around the firehouse or with your buddies or whatever the case is? Uh, after the hotel thing? Yes. Well, I never went back. That was it? That was it. Did you ever hear from any of your colleagues and coworkers? There was... So I've woken up in an ICU a few times <laughs> in my life. Um, the first two, there was a flood of firefighters and friends and family that, that came through to see me and visit me. Um, this last one was serious enough that, that they, they shut it down and said no visitors, but picture like some firefighters dressed up as like a maintenance crew or a pizza delivery guy or something like how, how, I don't know how they did it, but guys did make their way in. That's and awesome. They were, and they were my closest friends in the department. Probably, let's say 20 guys. They all gave me a super big hug. They all cried with me. And they all said that they had felt exactly the same way. And since I got back from the center, um, my contact with the department has been pretty sparse. I've shared podcast episodes, and um, from what I understand, I'll, the majority of the department has heard, has heard me speak. Good. Um, so that's that's a good thing. One of the things that I will say is that now I understand that mine had legal ramifications, you know, with being charged with assault and all that stuff. Um, this is something that really, really pissed me off about my department, my previous department, was that we're a family, 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 mm -hmm. we're a family. Well, my commander at the time ordered everybody, in, and I had a really tight-knit little group because of the I was a detective in special investigations, ordered every single buddy in my group to not have any contact with me. I had zero contact from my department. I had to call my boss once a morning. At 8 o'clock, because I was on admin leave, I'd have to call him and say, hey, I'm at home. Okay. Um, one person in that unit told my commander to go fuck themselves, and she's been my best friend for years. <laughs> she's like, fuck off. No, yeah. I'm going to go check on him. But that was Good. really disheartening to me that I was abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sitting here blaming my department, but I was a product of of what my department wanted without getting any help or resources from them. I think we can blame it. I think we can blame the, the culture. Yeah. It's a cultural problem. Agreed. And I think from, from my side of it, guys don't want to reach out to me because it's just a little too close to home. It's facing their own reality. Completely. I'm sure you'd probably welcome 
with open arms talking to people though. Oh yeah. And I have advocated for a few guys that have stepped forward and, and, and gotten out with PTS. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been good to help those people. Recently, I, I sent my chief a text offering to sit down with him and senior staff to, to speak about firefighter health and wellness. And he responded that they had a program that was tailored to their needs, uh, but thanks anyway. Well, sir, um, it clearly wasn't tailored to your needs. I'm very sorry that people are like that are still close-minded like that. They're doing something different. They're 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 addressing firefighter mental health in in quarterly training. Um, I I don't know what kind of resources they're they're making available. Though. Something has it's to give. I mean, the problem is something does give, and nothing happens. And it, yet again. There's things coming in. One of the things that I'm aware of, I don't know if it affects firefighters. I don't know if it's all public or, or public safety in the state of Arizona, but there's the Tiger Act. Yep. It, does that affect firefighters it as well? Does. Okay. Yep. And I just learned, again, from having uh, the chief deputy of PCSO on last week, that that ends next year. The I don't know because of the funding or whatever the case is. Have to renew it? Or yes. Not? So that's one of the things that when I had a conversation with him, I said, I would love to be a champion to the, with these lawmakers and say, why does this have a sunset clause on it? Yeah, well, and that's something I'll have to definitely research into and wow. look at. But why would we end? You know, maybe it was a test run. Oh, you know, we'll try this for a couple of years and see how it goes. But hmm. no, that needs to be permanent. Permanent. Hmm. All right, I'll add that to my list of <laughs> things to do. And I would love to partner up with you in any way, shape, or form, and yeah, and move forward with this. Yeah. So. I've got a few things um, brewing. Got a few irons in the fire. I'm going to finish that book up by the end of the year. Get that published. And then um, going to start touring the country in a year. And try and hit as many places as I can and, and appear and, and speak and get my, get my story out. Yeah. Share that and show people that they're not alone. There have been instances from starting my own podcast here where I've I've talked about health and mental health and all that, where I've had people send me messages, thank you so much for saying this, this helped. That's all I give a shit about. Mm -hmm. If it reaches one freaking person, yep. if it helps one person, that's all I care about. Yeah. Just helping. And again, I should also say that this doesn't just include just EMS, fire service and all that. It's anybody who's going through trauma. Trauma, trauma crosses... All barriers. Nobody's safe from it. And it just, you, you don't have to. You don't have to be lowered into a into a confined space to to recover bodies to have trauma. Right. You can be in a car accident. You can go through a divorce. Yep. And have trauma. It can be anything. It doesn't matter. And I mentioned complex PTSD was what what I was diagnosed with. So, what that is is a it's like a repetitive sports injury okay. um, where you're exposed to a certain level of trauma repeatedly. So those are kind of just the, 
your average common shitty calls, right. cardiac arrest right. doesn't go well, or you know whatever that is. Anything to do with children, unfortunately. Yep. But then you get hit with these big ones. So there are the repetitive ones, and then there are the the knockout punches. That for me was the that con space call and some narcotic overdoses that that went very poorly. Um, things like that that know exactly what your weakness is and they hit it so that's what that's what makes up complex ptsd and it's kind of that's what most all firefighters have well and that's what you just said is probably the most valid point of this entire conversation is that whether you believe it or not if you're in fire fire again the the public safety world and you've got more than a year on you probably have pts definitely you unless you you know just sorry to be an asshole but unless you went straight from the academy and became a school resource officer or went into training right away yeah yeah we all know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all know those types of types sure. if you went and worked the road if you went and you were on a truck for any amount of time you have bts yeah. just a matter of severity and the willingness to deal with it and unfortunately, the availability of resources in your department. We got to change that. Oh, man. That's that's what my goal is. That's what the thing was that I, that's what my goal is with this is to, part of my thing is to talk about it. Well, I think it takes, it takes experienced guys to, to step forward and, and do this. Yeah for people to see, unfortunately, credibility. Because I think in the in public safety, the longer you're on, the more you're looked at as being rock hard, yep. unshakable, yep. completely badass, and impervious to any any type of trauma at all. So when somebody else in the department sees an experienced, tenured member step forward and say hey i i have it here's what it looked like here's what i did here's what i'm doing to recover and here hopefully are the resources yeah. that you can now use so that you can do what i wish i were still doing people need to step up and be what they wish they had yeah and what they what they you know going through experiences like this we would lose a lot less good people out there. We would have to be lowering standards across the board on everything to get bottom of the barrel because nobody True. wants to do it. Yeah. The, the alarming thing is how easy it is to reach out to somebody. It's so easy to just call. There's a pride factor involved, though, too. And there's also that... Do they really want to hear from me? Ah, they're fine. They're fine. They're fine. I'm sure they're fine. They've dealt with this before. Right. Too often. Yeah. I I can't thank you enough for sharing this. Thank you so much for putting this microphone in front of me. I appreciate it. I again, we need to figure something out. Mhm. Mm I agree. <laughs> 
And let's not, oh yeah, and we did forget to mention that I ran into you on a call many, many years ago on the 101. Yes, yeah. It was an accident up on the 101, I think it was like Raintree or something like that. And I was Mm -hmm. like, holy shit, it's Rick. Yeah. But let's uh, let's not wait that long to to see each other again. I I would like that. Cool. Yeah. And if people want to reach out to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I am entering the, the public speaking realm. So if I can... If I can talk to an academy class, like I said, if I could talk to a city council, um, or if I could talk to a small group of people that even just find my my story interesting, uh, by all means, I'll do it. You can reach out to me at rickbooker603 at gmail.com. So it's R-I-C-K-B-U-C-H-E-R 603 at gmail.com. I have to say that, again, I, I spoke at the very beginning when we started talking that um, what I did not tell you about is that Andy Stumpf, I absolutely, positively, 100% kind of have a little bit of a man crush on him. <laughs> so I do. So when I was listening to the podcast, I had not finished the last couple minutes to get your contact information. Oh, yeah. And yeah. as soon as I, I listened to the end of it, it was like, I, I, I got an email. I pulled over. I pulled over on the side of the road. I pulled into a, a, a gas station and I emailed you. Cool. I was like, I have to, I've got to talk to Rick. I've got yeah. to talk to Rick. That's awesome. But I am going to need you to leave Andy's phone number for me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, but Rick, uh, your story is incredible. Your story is powerful. Um, I could not be more happy and glad that we're sitting here having this conversation. And I do believe that it everything, as we've said before, is that everything happens for a reason. And we're sitting here having this conversation for a reason. For sure. So. It feels good to do it. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rick. You bet. I appreciate it. Thank you.